it's warm outside. Mm-hmm. It's cookout season. Oh, yeah. And you know I'm ready to gear up the playlist. Oh, yes. The playlist can make or break the vibes of any cookout. Anyone. You put the wrong song in the wrong order, it's a wrap. Remember we, when we made a playlist? A cookout playlist? Yes. People yes. gave me a little bit of smoke. People gave me a little bit of smoke no. because I was adding some contemporary rap <laughs> to the playlist <laughs> and they were like, TT, you've got this all the way messed up. And I was like, y'all don't like a little dash of some ASAP <laughs> Rocky? Not with my auntie there. ASAP <laughs> Rocky, that's where the kickback, okay? The, right, the cookout right. playlist has to be like, okay, for fair, all generations. Fair, fair, fair. Some people didn't like my playlist. I think that that's just fine. I'm open to criticism. <laughs> well, it's a perfect time to think about the playlist and the music you choose and really the music all around us because this month is Black Music Month, which was formally recognized by the United States in 1979 with President Jimmy Carter. And I feel like it took too long, okay? Yes. I'm TT. And I'm Zakia. And from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. Oh, oh. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship. It's Black Music Month, so this week we're celebrating Black music and getting into the history, the culture, the politics, all of it, with some very special guests. We really wanted to know more about the roots of hip-hop and jazz and how Black music and artists have been at the forefront of popular culture, and what's next in music. Let's get into the recitation. Okay, so what do we know? Sometimes you'll hear people say Black pop culture or Black culture is everywhere, and it's not wrong. But I think we have to level set when we talk about Black music because terms and phrases evolve over time and their meanings do too. Black music is not just hip-hop, rap, and R&B. When we say Black music, we're referencing the history of music created, performed, and celebrated by Black artists and audiences. We also know that Black music is popular. Absolutely. I think we also know that Black music influences other genres of music heavily. We know that you can draw lines from rock and roll back to it being created by Black people. We also know music can be a tool for politics Mm -hmm. and has been. 
there's a rich history of that tracing back to instructional messaging or whether it's obvious at first glance or at first listen Mm -hmm. or not. Reflections of struggle, a way to carry on storytelling, particularly storytelling with political themes. Absolutely. And I think another thing that we know is that the hip hop rap scene used to be kind of like a fringe genre where it was just like very specific people. But now we see hip hop and rap being incorporated into a lot of pop. So it's all over the pop charts. Yeah. Black culture is everywhere, like straight up and down. Any way you slice it. 100. So we understand all of that. And I think we have accepted a lot of those things. The pervasive influence of Black culture in both Black music and popular music, really music all over. And it feels like that's often taken for granted in society. But what do we want to know specifically? TT? I want to know the specific influences that the Black music of the past has on today's Black music. Like, I know it's there. We know it's there. But I want to know in some of the ways that might not be absolutely apparent to all people that this is rooted in Black culture. Yeah. Like, you want the footnotes. Yes. You want to... <laughs> Give me all the assets. My friend wants the citations. Okay? Cite your sources. And I'm really interested in not just the people, because sometimes... Folks don't get credited, and we know how history can be massaged. And Mm -hmm. so I'm interested in the sonic relationships between the music we see today and earlier genres that are still booming, like jazz and soul. And I'm really curious about how the messaging in hip-hop has changed in recent decades. And if we look back, we got to look forward. Mm -hmm. What's the future of Black music looking like? We're seeing increasing popularity, which also can invite its other cousin, which is appropriation. And we're also seeing academia take a look at hip-hop and Black music. And so I think it's really interesting to kind of project and say, what might it look like in the next 10, 20, maybe even 50 years? Let's jump into the dissection. Our guests for today are Dr. Mark Anthony Neal and Ninth Wonder. Mark Anthony Neal, James B. Duke, Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. I am born and raised from the place that we affectionately call the Boogie Down Bronx, a.k.a. the home of hip-hop. Ninth Wonder, producer, college professor, DJ, avid basketball junkie, and uh, father of a French bulldog. Dr. Neal and Ninth Wonder are both professors in Duke University's African and African American Studies Department. Professor Neal also teaches classes in English and Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies and has published several books on Black popular culture. And Ninth Wonder is also a rapper, record executive, and producer who worked with Mary J. Blige, Jay-Z, Drake, Destiny's Child, Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, Erica Badu, Mac Miller... The list goes on and on and on. So when you look across music genres and you don't even really have to look that deep, it becomes really clear that Black musical artistry and its influence spans so many different categories of music. So we can trace back to spirituals and folk music, to blues, to rock and roll, to jazz, and then to hip hop. The roots of all of these genres are steeped in Black culture. We asked Dr. Neal to explain just how strong those roots are. It is everywhere. We talk about 
classical music, right? And we think about European cats with white wigs and Beethoven, all those kind of folks. But that's not a music that originated in the U.S. America's classical music is black music, and most specifically, jazz music is America's classical art form. There's very few examples of popular music in the U.S. in 2022 that have not been touched by the influence of Black roots music in some aspect. It's been the soundtrack to not only Black struggle, but American struggle. It's been the, the soundtrack to American patriotism, whether or not Black folks wanted that to be the case or not. And of course, it is a soundtrack to buying and selling in America, right? You can't watch a McDonald's commercial or any other commercial without some sort of reference to Black musical styles in that context. Mm, those are some really great points, especially about how classical music in the United States is Black music. And today's popular music is at least influenced by Black music and culture, if it isn't that explicitly. It really is. Even what he's saying about the McDonald's commercial, that R&B is not random behind them chicken mm -mm. nuggets. It's really not. And what we're doing now is thinking about music as the soundtrack to struggle or commerce or just everyday life. And so it makes a lot of sense that music can serve as a historical signpost for what's going on in the culture. Music is a signal, a capturing of things that are going on in the culture, right? So if you want to know what's happening with Black people, all you have to do is listening to the music at any given era. If you are marching from outer space and you landed in 1964 and you heard Curtis Mayfield and the Impression singing Keep On Pushing or you heard Sam Cooke singing The Change Is Going To Come without knowing what was going on, you would immediately know what was going on in that moment. I can't stop now. So many ways that stories or messages get passed down and Music is one of those. And when you look at music, there are so many ways within music that we pass down stories and messages. And we're going to get into that later in the episode. But first, we wanted to take a closer look at some of the foundational elements of Black music and trace how those ideas have evolved throughout genres over time. Before we start tracing these, I think we have to acknowledge a major part of Black music that we're not going to talk about, T.T. Right, right. And that's the influence of the Negro spiritual. Mm. So when we think about musical devices, particularly African musical devices that are part of Black American or African American culture, so rhythms, melodies, and beats, that's what people who were stolen from Africa, that's what they had. They kept what they could of their culture, and we see that in the music. And we definitely see that in like Negro spirituals and that influence work songs, you know, the songs people sang while they were working in fields mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. doing this really hard labor, gospel music, mm -hmm. and also in blues. And those things influence jazz. I'm interested in that concept of borrowing, remixing, sampling, referencing, and reframing that is integral and intentional to Black music. Yes, that feels like the... First brick mm -hmm. of building the house of hip-hop. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Neil breaks it down. So whenever you hear Black music, you're hearing musicians very consciously sampling and drawing from traditions that came before them. If you're listening to bebop in the 1940s, it's a Charlie Bird Parker pulling a tune from Tin Pan Alley and doing a little improvisation. Most of what we know as hip-hop is sample-based hip-hop, drawing specifically from existing recorded music. And at least in the early days of hip-hop, that was specifically these things that we call breakbeats. 
these kind of highly rhythmic parts, James Brown probably being the most notable example of that tradition and being able to extend them in a loop. At the time, it was a DJ, right, who was doing the loop. These days, obviously, it's all kind of tech machines and samplers. It makes a lot of sense that funk and soul has a huge impact on hip-hop. A lot of the elements from funk and soul show up in hip-hop. James Brown, a.k.a. the godfather of soul, is the most sample artist of all time. And then the drum break, improvised by Clyde Stubblefield, who often worked with James Brown, and he's on James Brown's song, Funky Drummer, is one of the most sampled songs in hip-hop. The name of this tune is the Funky Drummer. <laughs> the Funky Drummer. It's such a connected web. Once you start looking at how many times somebody has been sampled, right. you know, you have to ask, are you talking about just sampling the beat? Are you talking about sampling the lyrics and quoting those? Right. Right. Are you talking about, you know, covering somebody's song? Exactly. And when it comes to James Brown, all of the above. <laughs> you know? All of the above. And the really big thing to note is that if he's the most sampled artist, that the second most sampled artist or group is... Not even close. Not even half <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of the amount of times that he's been sampled. Basically, what we hear now is often a refabrication of sounds and sights and things that we heard before. Everybody lost their mind listening to Silk Sonic's new song. And I'm like, well, you know, that's a love train, right? I'm like, well, I've been listening to the original love train, right, for, for 40 years by Confunction. So everything that's new is not new. <laughs> Listen, Confunction did it first. And <laughs> I love Bruno and Anderson, a.k.a. DJ Pee Wee, a lot. But it's hard to fight Confunction. Confunction ran so that they could hobble behind them. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, we can trace the connection between soul, funk, and R&B to hip-hop. But there's also this connection between jazz and hip-hop, too. Ninth Wonder, along with jazz musicians Robert Glasper, Terrace Martin, and Kamasi Washington, released an album recently called Dinner Party. And this is an album that really shows explicit connection between jazz and hip-hop. But what about some of those earlier influences where we see some of that same borrowing from jazz? One of the reasons why myself, Kamasi, Robert Glasper, and Terrence Martin did Dinner Party was to show that kind of bridge that's always been there. Because you got some jazz cats that don't really jive with hip-hop like that, but you have some new age hip hoppers that know nothing about jazz. And we were trying to show the intersection of the two. So there's the sampling of music, but then there's also musical influence on lyrical delivery. When the idea of rap flow started to change, like in the early 80s, you know, the Curtis Blows and the Houdinis and all of them had the same type of, you know, rap flow. Breaks in a bus, breaks on the car, breaks to make you a superstar, breaks to win and breaks to lose, but these here breaks rock your shoes and but when Rakim came along, he made the distinct relation to, I get a lot of my flows from John Coltrane, how he plays the sax. And also, the Notorious B.I.G. said, I listened to Max Roach. There was an um, older gentleman in his neighborhood who played him Max Roach records, and he learned different syncopations and different rhythms with his voice. 
Max Roach was a drummer and composer, and he's known as a pioneer of bebop and one of the most important drummers of all time. You know, like Dr. Neil said, Rakim kind of changed things. We went from Curtis Blow with These Are the Breaks, you know, like what felt like kind of stiff rapping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we went to kind of flowy rapping with Rakim. And someone who's even more recent, who really should be credited if he hasn't been enough mm-hmm. for his ability to kind of change the course of hip hop is Q-Tip. Brand new truck, but a seat, four point something with a low ride something. Ain't nothing better than the ride out the hood with it. Ninth highlights Q-Tip, who is a solo artist and also a member of a tribe called Quest. I teach a hip hop production class and one of the guests we had on Zoom one day was Q-Tip from a tribe called Quest. A Tribe Called Quest, its sound and the musical contributions of the individual members had a huge fingerprint on music transitioning in the late 80s to 90s. I wanted to know why in the late 80s hip-hop shifted from a lot of soul sampling, a lot of James Brown, James Brown, James Brown, to Les McCann and Roy Ayers, right? And Q-Tip is like the genesis of that. Q-Tip said, man, I grew up in a neighborhood around Weldon Irvine. And I'm like, what? Like, (laughs) what is that? Like Weldon Irvine and a lot of jazz cast that he, he grew up around influenced the sound that would change a generation. Weldon Irvine was a musician and artist. He's most known for his song Morning Sunrise, which came out in 1979. And that sampled on Jay-Z's track Dear Summer. And that came out in 2005. He was a mentor to many hip-hop artists in New York, as well as Nina Simone's musical director. So you know that's big. Just that texture of music. We call him top of the family tree because without Q-Tip, you don't have Common, Most, Quali, Badu, Jill, Little Brother, Slum Village, The Roots, Outcast. Like, I can go a whole family tree of people that doesn't exist because of Q-Tip. And it's all because he just he started to dig into Roy Ayers more than he started digging into James Brown. And so that gives us this transition from music that sounded all funky and chopped up, like James Brown with the funky drummer, to a much smoother sound with Roy Ayers. I say everything begins with Benita Applebaum. Benita Applebaum, like sound-wise, became the genesis of every laid-back hip-hop song that you know. Benita Applebaum is the one. And that's a Roy Ayers-produced group called Ramp. It's that feel-good time of euphoria. So from the way we rhyme to the textures that we use, like jazz is it. And on top of that, jazz and hip hop leans on one thing together, and that's improvisation. It's all about making stuff up. This is the 60s, and you're Coltrane, Thelonious Monk on stage, and some other cast, Charlie Bird Parker, and they're having like a, a quintet session. You couldn't get up on that stage unless you were ready to be able to hang with that particular jam session. It's the same thing with MCing. If you see Black Thought, Royster 5 9, Rhapsody, Nas, some of the greatest wordsmiths of our time on stage in a cypher. If you want to call yourself an MC and get your chops up, you better be ready to get on stage and and, and get in that cypher and don't break the cypher. But definitely hip-hop bars a lot from jazz with that kind of like vetting system or guard system. It's like a badge of honor almost. You can't be called one of us unless you do this. 
So now we're talking about hip-hop borrowing from jazz in both musical sampling and in the delivery of rap flow, lyrical flow. And then also we're talking about hip-hop borrowing from jazz in the process of kind of like this rites of passage about who gets to be called it? Who gets to be called a jazz musician? Who gets to be called a hip-hop artist? It feels really heavily layered. Hip-hop is Black music, and it's also some of the most popular music in our culture. Like we said earlier, Black music is American music, just like Black culture is American culture. And I think we're seeing that more and more today with the growing influence of hip-hop on popular culture. Hip-hop has now become, it's scary for a lot of people to say, but if hip-hop is now Americana, especially because of the consumption of streams and, and the music business, but also by the fashion, by the talk, by the slang, more and more each day, I see other races saying things that we made up in the street. Is everywhere. We'll continue to be everywhere. People are already fascinated with black bodies anyway. They're definitely fascinated with black rappers <laughs> still to this day. That so many older white men, they are fascinated that if they know a young black rapper, like it puts them in a, a different space. The thing I see a lot of people say is street cred. It's always been a part of America. And it's going to continue to grow when more enlightened people get older, especially young white Americans that like the Jimmy Fallon's of the world and who has the roots as their Tonight Show band, right? And all the cats on Sports Center who who didn't grow up listening to Johnny Cash or grew up listening to Nas. I mean, what do we do with that? It's not even just older white men. It's, it's corporate everybody. America. It's, yeah, everybody. it's everybody. Yeah, it's in general. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, I know this thing. I mean, we see it all over social media where folks are using African-American English and not using it correctly a lot of the time. And they feel like it's a way to give themselves street cred, like just to make themselves cooler. But what they're trying to do is get as close to Blackness as they can without being Black. I knew things were really changing when it was the Oscars, I think, of last year. And it was Glenn Close. They asked her about DC Go-Go. And she started talking about Junkyard Band and Backyard Band and Rare S's. And I'm like, look at this, man. This is placed in one of the whitest spaces ever, the Oscars. And just that type of thing shows you that in order to be cool, in order to be creative, in order to be on the cutting edge, you got to know what Black people are doing. And, you know, we can't talk about these things without talking about people who have been a part of this culture, who have listened to this music, being outcasts or excluded from things because they identified in this way, mm -hmm. you know? And that kind of gets us into, like, the cultural appropriation of music and the culture that goes along with Black music. It's like, who gets recognized? Who gets credit? And the thing about us that we still haven't figured out, and we're just so free with our creative property or intellectual property that it can be taken in a moment's notice and put somewhere else. We're so given as people, we want to share with everybody, not knowing it's being taken from us every time. Yeah, in the excitement, a lot of things get shared. And that's how we get back to that cycle of sharing versus then who's getting credit for these things. Who's creating versus who's leveraging opportunities from the creation. Even recently, Bad Bunny, he has a hit called Sapphira. And part of the problem was is that he used some of the beat from Missy Elliott's 2001 hit, Get Your Freak On. We all know Get Your Freak On. And didn't credit her. And so it was never properly cleared with Missy and her team. So it's a really long story. We'll put more about that in the show notes. But this is something that is still pervasive today. 
Culture is political, and music has definitely been used as a political tool to reflect on current struggles, to call for revolution, or to even imagine different realities, like what life could be like. We asked Professor Neal and Ninth Wonder to walk us through some monumental songs throughout history that have been signposts for what's going on politically in history. Dr. Neal starts with Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday, 1939, Strange Fruit, talking about the practice of lynching, which folks thought was coming to an end, but clearly in 2022, you know, yesterday's mass lynchings have become today's mass shootings. There's strange fruit, blood on the leaves. So Billie Holiday was a jazz singer, and she was known for her distinctive vocal style, which was inspired by jazz instrumentalists like Louis Armstrong and another well-known jazz singer, Bessie Smith. Just recently, we saw Billie Holiday's life and the contributions of her music and what it meant politically really kind of thrust into the spotlight with Audra Day doing the film The United States vs. Billie Holiday. And I was really surprised at just how involved the government was in the message that Billie Holiday was delivering through her music. I didn't know that. Absolutely. I thought it was really eye-opening, the entire film, because when we talk about Billie Holiday today, you know, we just talk about the music, but the politics was such a major, major part of it. And so what we saw with Billie Holiday, which was basically protest through song, is something we see throughout history in Black music. Nina Simone talking about Mississippi Goddamn, talking about, you know, anti-Black violence in the South, a song that she wrote immediately after the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in 1963. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. The 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham had been a center or hub for civil rights organizing. And on September 15, 1963, the KKK members planted dynamite under the steps. And that attack killed four girls and injured 14 to 22 other people. And this happened just two weeks after the March on Washington and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. So fast forward, 1964, Nina Simone releases Mississippi Goddamn. And she's referencing what's happening in these states. And I know I said 1964. You may be asking, is it 2024? Right. Alabama's gotten me so upset. Tennessee's mm-hmm. made me lose my rest. And mm-hmm. everybody knows about Mississippi. She wrote this song immediately after the bombing. And the song is in direct response to the attack and other white supremacist violence targeting Black people across the South. And so that includes the assassination of Medgar Evers, who was fighting to end segregation in public schools, securing voting rights and other rights for Black people. Dr. Neal also mentioned Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come, which was also released in December of the same year as Nina Simone's song. Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come, right? This idea that in the midst of everything that was going on, right, the deaths of Medgar Evers, the deaths, you know, shortly after that of Malcolm X, you know, that folks are hoping and wishing for something to change. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. There's a movie mm. that captures the importance of Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come, and it talks about this meeting of some other Black leaders, Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and Jim Brown. All of them met together in February 1964. And Regina King recently made a movie about it called One Night in Miami. 
it just shows like the struggle. Like it shows people figuring out like what's going to go in my music. Mm. Do people just want to hear feel good music? I'm torn. These things are happening in my community. Right. And I think a lot of artists are facing that. Like what goes in my work versus what's for me, you know? Right. I mean, we saw that shift. We talk about Beyonce a lot, but we saw that shift with Beyonce and her music where at a certain point in her career, she decided that she did want to become more political with the messaging in her music. And that's when we had, you know, Lemonade, Black is King and things like that. And I think all of this is really important, TT, because Mm -hmm. when we consider the turmoil, the violence against Black folks and then the protest music that we just talked about, you know, this is the backdrop of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about these things happening in 1964. And the Civil Rights Act was passed in July 1964. Right. And the Civil Rights Act, the purpose of it was it outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origins. It also prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, racial segregation in schools and public accommodations, and employment discrimination. And this was a huge landmark for legislation. That's July 1964. You move a couple months later, we're at February 1965. And Malcolm X is assassinated in the Audubon Ballroom in New York. And his death really escalated the Black Power movement, Mm -hmm. this revolutionary movement that was really active in the 60s and 70s. And very similar to the civil rights movement, it advocated for, you know, economic, social and cultural empowerment for Black folks. But it differed a little bit in its support of more militant approaches to achieving those goals. And that was really embraced by like the Black Panther Party, Organization Us and the Republic of New Africa. Throughout history, Black artists have always found ways to find joy and celebrate the milestones along the way amid loss and struggle. James Brown, right? I'm I'm Black and I'm proud, (laughs) right? That this moment where folks could be fully in public and Black and not have to worry about them being punished for expressing what they felt at the time. Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, right? The the quintessential protest album, right? Created as this kind of holistic suite that spoke to every aspect of what we're dealing with. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. You know, Marvin Gaye started out as a crooner. You know, I see the guys on Instagram trying to wear the little red Marvin Gaye hat. (laughs) But by 1971, when he released What's Going On, we're at the height of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And you can hear him grappling with what the country is going through and what Black people are experiencing during this time. Talking about the environment, talking about an anti-war movement, talking about Black politics, talking about poverty in the ghetto, right? He managed to get all of that into a 35-minute record. Dr. Neal also talked about how this music was so personal to him, as well as so many Black kids growing up as these records were being recorded and released. The time that I came of age, listening to the message in 1982, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and and this detailed analysis of the hood that I knew that I was growing up with, right, that so many people in the world didn't know of. And this was a time when everybody was calling, you know, when they folks thought about hip-hop, all they thought about, or rap music, all they thought about was party and bullshit. Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel made a whole bunch of party and bullshit records that, that we love to this day. But then they dropped this sociological gem in the message. Broken glass everywhere. People pissing on the stage. You know they just don't care. I can't take the smell. Can't take the noise. Got no money to move out. I guess I got no choice. You know, I think we see this with a lot of artists. They might come out with, you know, kind of a party song or a fun, upbeat, 
Mm-hmm. And then they're like, okay, I have a platform. I have a voice. There's mm-hmm. something I want to say. So similar to what we saw with Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. you see Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five shifting a little bit with the message. That's right. In 1982, they released a song called The Message, and the lyrics describe poverty and the inner city struggle. And it was one of the first songs in hip hop that addressed those issues head on. This political and social commentary was influential to the growth of consciousness. Even Run DMC, a group that we never think about as being political, could drop a song like It's Like That, which again talked about the politics of what everyday Black life was. And and then definitely for me, my generation, anything the public enemy touched between 1986, (laughs) right, to 1992 has to be on that list. Yes. Run DMC and Public Enemy were both part of the new school of hip hop, which, you know, you kind of see really growing around the mid 1980s. Public Enemy built on the foundation that was laid by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, talking about this radical political ideology. Dr. Neal lists additional songs and albums that fit that same mold. Rebel Without a Pause, Fight the Power is the one that stands out. But that album, you know, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back and don't believe the hype. I mean, it just changed everything. The politics were radical. The images were radical. The sounds were radical. The sampling techniques were radical. We got to fight the power, baby. Fight the power. It's really fascinating to see that radical political message was mirrored in the sounds and musical techniques that these artists used. Ninth Wonder also shared his experiences of coming of age during this period of music, a time when social and political consciousness was at the forefront of hip-hop. Neil is older than me. You know, I don't like to say that, but he's older than I am. And um, <laughs> I always like to gloat and revel in the fact that I was able to enjoy consciousness and hip-hop at the age I got a chance to enjoy it, which is every kid's formidable years. It Takes a Nation Means to Hold Us Back came out when I was 13. There you go. The year before, a show debuted on TV called A Different World. In 1988, Spike Lee released School Days. In 1989, Spike Lee released Do the Right Thing. So... What Ninth Wonder is highlighting is not just the music, Mm -hmm. but also the culture. We're talking about television now and Mm -hmm. movies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A Different World was a classic. Honestly, we talked about A Different World in our Black History Month episode with X. And School Days, too. Different World and School Days. And about how it really showcased a side of Black culture that wasn't necessarily always showcased on television. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I loved about those shows is they were funny. Mm-hmm. They were giving me this glimpse into like, oh, wow, this is what college is like. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching them years later, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And still they feel relevant, but they're also talking about issues like sexual assault, mm-hmm. HIV and AIDS. Yes, when Freddie was almost sexually assaulted and Dwayne Wade jumped through the roof of the car to beat up the guy. These are moments that you will never forget. And it addresses those issues head on and gives you the tools as young people to know how to deal with those situations. So that's like mid to late 80s. And then we move right at that cusp of like 88 to 92, I would say. (laughs) Hip hop is doing a lot of things at that point. So before we were talking about the East Coast, but the West Coast is also on the map. Straight out of Compton, crazy from the gang with attitudes. So I always say... You know, NWA put out Straight out of Compton. Queen Latifah put out All Hail to Queen. Jungle Brothers Done by the Fortress of Nature. De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. A Tribe Called Quest. People's Instinctive Travels in the Past of Rhythm. 
I'm 14 years old. Like I am in heaven. Like this is black, 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 black. Like not only is black, but it's also Pan-Africanism. Then you got KRS One and Boogie Down Productions. Then you have Kane saying Assalamu Alaikum. You have Rakim call himself Rakim Allah. Like now you have an intersection of Southern black Christian boy learning about Islam at age 13, 14. This was an amazing time for me and my friends. That's wild. I mean, imagine being able to be of the age where you can understand what's going on. You kind of understand what's going on in the world and you can understand what's going on in the music and be able to absorb those political and social messages of the music as it was being released. Man, you know, I can remember folks wearing like my older cousins wearing those like big necklaces that had <laughs> the symbol of Africa and it was like red, black, and, and green. green. Uh-huh. And it makes me think about brands like Cross Colors, even the mm-hmm. clothes mm-hmm. that people were wearing and things that had the fist on them. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. Pan-Africanism was a global movement and hip hop was in it. Absolutely. And you know, when you think about who's driving culture, who's saying this is what's in, the musicians were doing that. Mm-hmm. And so it feels fitting that they have a place right there is some of the disseminators of political messaging. So far, we've seen hip-hop evolve from something that wasn't explicitly political to a genre that really had consciousness at its heart. But this period of consciousness in hip-hop didn't last forever. Sometimes we like to tell the young generation that, oh, we were just so political. The only problem is, it became a hard realization for me, that the high point in consciousness in hip-hop on a surface level, which means a level that wasn't considered underground, that you can find it, you didn't have to dig for it, probably only lasted like three or four years. 88 to like, I'll say about 92, because once Dr. Dre and Snoop with the chronic came, it was over. Like it was, <laughs> whoop, <laughs> you can forget it. One, two, three into the four. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. This time period that Ninth Wonder is talking about falls within what many refer to as the golden age of hip-hop. So from the mid-80s to the early to mid-90s. Ninth tells us that things kind of changed when Bad Boy Records came on the scene. Bad Boy was founded in 1993 by Sean P. Diddy Combs. Well, Diddy. Or Puff Daddy. Brother Love. Brother Love. Sean Love Combs. Uh... Puffy. <laughs> so many names. So many Lots names. Lots of names. Still the same Puff. <laughs> when Bad Boy came, we was in the club. There was still a hint of having some type of consciousness, which means Ten Crack Commandments is a conscious song, right? It teaches you something. It might teach you the wrong thing, but it gives you some type of instruction. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, oh. eight, nine. I've been in this game for years. Uh, it made me an animal. It's rules to this. Uh-huh. Ten Crack man. Commandments is a track from the Notorious B.I.G. from his album Life After Death. It was released in 1997 and it's Big's manual on how to succeed at dealing drugs. Like number one, never let them know how much dough you hold. Or number six, that goddamn credit, dead it. While this might not be a deep exploration of societal issues up front, Big is talking about the practical ways to make it in this business. The hip-hop at one point was instructional, whether it been by Safe Six with Jimmy by Boogie Down Productions or the UNITY or I always say that one of the first versions of Beyonce's Lemonade and hip-hop from a man's perspective was looking at the front door by Main Source. Like he was really 
you know, large professor was really going through it with his girl. And he was like, you treat me bad. I, I don't think I can take it anymore. I'm looking at the front door. It was political, but it was also instructional and informational. A lot of hip hop today doesn't give you any type of instruction whatsoever. We fight every night. Now that's not kosher. I reminisce with bliss of when we was closer and wake up to be greeted by an argument again. I think we started to get into the instructions, but they're telling you left foot stomp and <laughs> <laughs> Cupid shuffle. <laughs> uh, but maybe one day we'll get back to it. Watch. Just watch. Next hip hop. The next well, song Meg that Stallion blows up. gives some good instructions. Meg Thee Stallion does give instructions. Simon says, put your hands on your hips. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the only thing we're missing now is like hip hop that's like, this is how you start an LLC. <laughs> let's take a break and when we come back we'll talk about community and music the culture of streaming and the future of hip-hop and hip-hop education When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! We're back, and we've been celebrating Black Music Month with Dr. Mark Anthony Neal and Ninth Wonder. But before we jump back in with the two of them, let's talk about next week's lab. In next week's lab, we're talking all about linguistics with Dr. John Baugh, the history, accents, dialect, slang, and code switching that's done in the United States. All right, let's get back to the lab. Before the break, we were talking about messaging and hip-hop. So we wanted to know what changed from the 90s to the 2000s to the 2010s and why we hear less instructional messaging in hip-hop. What's missing today? One of the things that's missing is intimacy. And, and I don't think we can mistake intimacy for sex because there's lots of sex in the music, but not intimacy. And I mean that on a bunch of levels. Ninth has talked about this in class. There was a time where we had to listen to music in community. There was a stereo system in the house. Everybody listened to the music at the same time. Your kids are in the car. I mean, when my daughters were young, they were trapped in the car. They had the music taste that they have now because I played what I played and they had to listen. Now in the car and each one of them is plugged into their own listening system. I remember as a child being just glued to the radio. My parents, we begged them for, you know, one of the little portable radios that you could have like in your bedroom. And mm-hmm. me and my sisters, we would just lay in front of it and listen to it all day, especially in the summer and on the weekends, just listening to music. And then, you know, do you remember the box? What's the box? You could call in and put in a code and then it will play the music video. So then we went from, you know, waiting to hear stuff on the radio station to watching the box and seeing different music videos and then 
MTV and BT really took off. So then you see all these different songs, music videos. You have MTV behind the scenes, making the music video, all these things like that. Remember when Napster first came on the scene and then you could just get all the musics. You didn't have to buy a CD. Yeah. That changed a lot. So there's the intimacy of listening to music with other people. But Dr. Neil is also talking about the intimacy in music itself. I used to teach this Michael Jackson class. And we tend, when we think about Michael Jackson and Prince, we don't talk about the ballads, right? You know, and I'm like, I'm, I'm a big ballad dude, right? So I'm, we're listening to Lady in My Life, which I think is Michael Jackson's best ballad. Uh, maybe Butterflies, you know, on, on a good day. <laughs> We're listening to the song, and what struck me is that they had no relationship to the music, i.e. they didn't know what to do with it. So I asked someone to give a demonstration to do a slow jam or grind, like what what my parents used to call it, and they had no idea what I'm talking about because they'd never slow danced. Intimacy, them, and music is like twerking, or or that's actually one of the examples that someone used, but, but the idea of a slow, intimate dance, I'm old enough to remember the sixth grade dance. You had to have a distance, right? You need to be, you know, a foot and a half, two feet between you and the girl. And as you got older, you got to close that gap. And we got a bunch of young folks who never experienced that. And it plays out in terms of what they hear in the music, what they value in the music. When Mark Anthony Neal says grind, it's not the grind that I think that y'all are talking about. The term grind has evolved over time to mean something (laughs) a little bit different. But what he's talking about is just, you know, a slow song that couples would dance to. I just think it's really interesting how, you know, the way we consume music, and this is such a good point, how it affects the experience, the culture, you know, around music and music consumption. Ninth Wonder talks about how the digital landscape of music has affected the way we experience and discover music now. There's no community when it comes to something that was created by the community. First of all, it's not a turn-on factor. There's no let me let you hear this because you haven't heard it. It's not that. Because whether you know it or love it or not, every album in the world that comes out on streaming is on your phone. As opposed to being in college and me walking by a room and somebody had the money that week to buy this new Pete Rock and CL Smooth album that I couldn't get. And I'm listening to it like, man, I'm broke, but he the only one that got it. I'm going to have to listen to it in his room until I get my refund check and then go to the mall and then buy it. Sharing music is a lot easier today. I think one way during the pandemic that we started sharing music with each other, having these communal experiences around music was Versus. Versus was such a huge thing that happened during the pandemic. So Timbaland and Swiss Beats, they started inviting artists to share their music, be a celebration of the music that they have put out. And everybody was locked in. And I really enjoyed, you know, texting with friends and saying, oh my gosh, I completely forgot all about this song and reading the comments as the as the verses was going on and seeing what other people had to say and seeing, you know, celebrities being like, this is one of my favorite songs. And I'm like, this is one of my favorite songs. <laughs> That was the beauty about it, because now I went to an HBCU. So when I go back to homecoming, every time I see somebody, I look at them by song. It's so crazy. Like I I see them by album. I'm like, man, you remember when you listen to Mob Deep all the time? That's the first thing we say 
or win a party and I play the record and then somebody I went to school with 30 years ago will come over, that was our joint. Like, you know what I mean? Because either I heard it in his room or he heard it in my room. Either way, we are tied together forever. Yeah, I think there are some things, if I was with somebody during a certain phase, you know, one of the musicians that I'm a big fan of and we talk about it all the time, TT, is the dream. And I can remember where I was when I heard I Love Your Girl Mm -hmm. for the first time. And I was just getting an apartment. Like, oh my goodness. What a time to be alive. What a time. Man, we lucky. Okay. And so... One of my friends now, even when I see her, she's always making a reference to like purple kisses and, you know, he's talking <laughs> about lipstick and stuff like that. I mean, we were just eating it up, right? And so you think about those things, you know, and you remember where you were when mm-hmm. you heard this music and when you heard it with different people. Mm-hmm. The album experience, right? The wonderful thing about this is it's tangible. We can hold it. That means we can collect it. It would kill us if somebody stole our album collection. Most kids, the music is not a collection for them. It is an experience. For us, it was a collection, right? When it comes to this tangible object, we had to play it from front to back. You can't shuffle this. You have to consume the whole thing. That's the thing I think this generation is missing out on, which is why they don't believe albums are important. Some do, some don't, is because they have a chance to make their own playlist in a moment's notice or listen to somebody else's playlist as opposed to me and you guys having to sit in front of the radio waiting for your song to come on and unpausing the tape. And then you might get some of the DJ talking, which you don't want that at all. It's that kind of patience and waiting experience to hearing a song on the radio. It's not out yet. You can't have it. And then a month later it comes out, but then it comes out on a single. Then you got to get the single. Then you have to get another single. Then the album comes out. And that was a way the hip hop didn't get so watered down. But of course, the powers of B saw this thing was a powerful thing and they made it so much a commodity that it got watered down. And now it doesn't hold the same shelf life as it used to. I mean, I feel like, yes, there are some people who are album purists, you know, and streaming has some drawbacks, but I think it also has some benefits. There's something magical about playlists, I think. And mm-hmm. really, if somebody's able to curate and really get the vibes mm-hmm. right, DJ D-Nice. Mm-hmm. D-Nice starting club quarantine yep. during the pandemic. That was special. Yeah. You know, and so I think everybody was able to kind of join his IG live and listen to him play song after song and really get the vibe and the energy going. And... One of the things I really like doing is making playlists and sharing them with people. And I'm like, this is my waking up playlist to really get the day started. This is my winter playlist. And it's really special because, you know, it's basically like if you have access to Wi-Fi, you have access to music. And like Ninth was saying, you know, if he didn't have the money, he wouldn't be able to listen to the album. Yes, that was part of the process. And, you know, how some of these ritualistic aspects of music consumption make you feel good but Mm -hmm. some folks will never get that refund check and so they will never be able to listen to that album unless they're with somebody else but now with streaming everyone has the opportunity to engage and be impacted by music far and wide and you also have the opportunity to discover so you can listen to music that's being put out you know, in Germany, you can listen to music that's being put out in Brazil. You can listen to music that's being put out in Nigeria and be a part of these cultural explorations and expressions of what's going on at the time in different parts of the world. Well, one thing that's certain 
is that all of this is happening much, much faster. Oh, yeah. Both the production and consumption of mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it seems like this can have an impact on the longevity of an artist and their work. I ask my students all the time, how long do you consume an album? They say, ah, man, I'm done with it. I'm done with an artist. Uh, in about four months, I'm moving on to somebody else. And I say, well, that's crazy because I've been listening to De La since 1989. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think they will never experience that. Experience longevity with an artist, staying with an artist, watching an artist. I say, yo, we waited for an Outcast album every two years, and we're still waiting on the day they decide they want to do one. D'Angelo made us wait 15 years for an album. I don't think this generation will ever get a chance to experience that because everything moves so fast, and it's on to the next so much, and loyalty is not there. It's wild because folks give Rihanna a hard time. Rihanna, what's the next album? What's the next album? Meanwhile, she's giving us makeup, a baby, a fashion line, everything. A lot of things. And she also gave us like seven albums in eight years. That's a Mm. lot of albums, okay? And what folks don't realize is that Lauryn Hill (laughs) only gave us one. And, you know, that's fine with me. Lauryn, take your time. If she comes out with another album, it's over, okay? But I'm not trying to rush it. You have to have patience. (laughs) I think what you're raising is a really good point because not only has the loyalty that people feel towards artists changed, but their expectations and standards have too. Sometimes people have these really high expectations or we see like the super fan. I think we've always seen a lot of fans. I've seen people on Twitter talking about like, oh, I just listened to this album. It's top two. And I'm like, the album came out 36 hours ago. It came out midnight. (laughs) It's Saturday afternoon. The album came out Friday morning. As soon as the clock went from 11.59 on Thursday to midnight, you were able to stream it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure you can see an album that high and it hasn't even had two full days. Right. It's still raw. Yeah. You know, it hasn't even cooked yet. Yeah, it might be hot for right now, but you might have to cut that album open and it's raw on the inside. (laughs) 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 Needs to be put back in the oven. You know, I think we've been taking a look back. We've been looking back so much at history and saying, these are the roots. These are the people that built the musical family tree for Black music. But I'm really interested in what the future of music looks like, specifically hip-hop and the recognition of hip-hop in academia. I would challenge that our hip-hop curriculum and what we teach as hip-hop will beat the life out of any university in the country. The guests that we get to have, my classes did their presentations, and one of the class group presentations was on Busta Rhymes' The Coming, and I had my phone on IG Live, and guess who was watching? Busta Rhymes. And Busta Rhymes got on live with me and told the class how much he loved the presentation. Can you imagine having Busta Rhymes sitting in on your lecture? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have those kind of guest speakers. (laughs) Me either. Shoot. But Dr. Neal also told us that the class can't be taught to the expectations of the students. We have to push them beyond that. So when folks ask me, it's like, well, what is the class about? Well, it is a portal into post-World War II Black life in the United States through hip hop. 
Right. So we're going to start the conversation with the 1965 Immigration Act, because without that, there is no hip hop. And so we spend two or three weeks on the Cross Bronx Expressway, the Immigration Act, what's happening structurally in New York and other kind of cities before we touch even one song. And kids are sitting in the class going, well, when are we going to talk about Jay-Z? When are we going to talk about Drake? <laughs> right? When are we going to talk about Kanye? And truth be told, we could do a whole 15 or 16 weeks and never even get to talk about that stuff. So for a lot of these students, I guess what they're experiencing is that the class isn't what they thought it was going to be. And learning the full context requires going back decades Without these earlier historical milestones, there's no Drake, there is no Kanye, there is no Jay-Z. No Meg, no E. <laughs> there's no Meg, there's no Meg, you know. no City Girls, okay? No Lil' Kim, no Foxy Brown, none of them. Mm-mm. And it's really important to have scholars like Dr. Neil and Ninth Wonder who are pushing the culture forward while also being historians of the culture. So I like to think of, you know, like guardians of the galaxy. They're the <laughs> guardians of the hip hop galaxy, right? Yes. I just believe that the practitioners of this culture need to teach it. The longtime fans turned scholars of this culture. Mark Anthony Neal needs to teach it. We are the ones to have hip hop and scholarship in the same sentence. And we've done it from HBCUs to Ivy Leagues, period. So hopefully that gave you something to think about when you're jamming to your playlist this summer. And maybe you'll listen out for references to Mm -hmm. other lyrics you've heard, Mm -hmm. beats that sound familiar. There's a lot to unpack in there. Yeah, especially in pop music. Mm. Yes. I encourage everybody to do a little bit of digging on whosampled.com to find Mm -hmm. out some of the references in some of your favorite songs. Absolutely. We've talked about quite a few things here, TT. Mm-hmm. And it made me ask myself a question. And I want to ask our listeners, what's your favorite style of like integrating old music and new? Yes, we are super curious. So if you look into the Spotify app right now, you should see a poll. So yes, I want to know, what's your favorite style of integrating old music with new? Is it sampling? Like when somebody takes a beat from an old song and puts it in a new one? Is it remixing? Like when somebody takes the entire song and remixes the whole thing? Mm -hmm. Or is it lyrical callbacks? Like when somebody uses a lyric from an old song and takes that lyric and puts it in their song. The one thing we're sharing this week is an extensive playlist. Be sure to check it out. It'll be linked on our show notes page at dopelabspodcast.com. That's it for Lab 67. I hope you learned something in this lab. If you have a song that has a hidden hip hop or jazz influence or reference, tell us about it. Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought. Or give us an idea for a lab we should do this semester. We really like hearing from you. So you can call or text us at 202-567-7028. And don't forget that there is so much more to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab, additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest experts, Dr. Mark Anthony Neal and Ninth Wonder. You can find and follow them on Twitter at New Black Man and at Ninth Wonder. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Lab Podcast. TT's on Twitter and Instagram at dr underscore tsho. And you can find Zakia at Z Said So. 
Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from Mega Own Media Group. Our producers are Jenny Radelet Mass, Lydia Smith, and Izzy Ross of Wave Runner Studios. Our associate producer from Mega Own Media is Brianna Garrett. Editing and sound design by Rob Smirciak. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. From Spotify, executive producer Corinne Gilliard and creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison, Yasmin Afifi, Kamu Elolia, Till Kratke, and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega O Media Group are us, Titi Shodia and Zakia Watley. I was trying to tie Beyonce to Lyndon B. Johnson. <laughs> Another B, Lyndon B. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs>